Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hey, Sam. Hey, Laurie, how you doing? I'm good. I'd like to congratulate you and us. This is our 50th episode of Across the Pond. Yeah, good. I'm glad you congratulated yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is our 50th episode. So thank you, Laurie, and thank you to our listeners. It's been a blast so far. I think so too. You know, when we started doing this, I don't think I had in my mind any goal or expectation about how long we would continue, but it feels to me at least like 50, 50 episodes has gone by pretty quickly. Yeah, really, really quickly. I can I can barely even remember when we started. Yesterday was it? <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it. But no, it's been it's been really just a lot of fun and I'm so thankful for our listeners and for all the great guests that we've had on and just the creation and production of the wonderful books that we've had the opportunity to to read and to analyze and to talk about. It's just been it's just been a really good experience for me personally. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I've read a lot of great books and perhaps even better, I've had a lot of those books opened up to me even further by our, our fantastic guests who have explained what's happening in them so well and really brought them to life and made me think about new things in them. So it's been a really good experience for me as a reader. I think, I hope it's made me a better reader maybe. Yeah, it's always interesting, I think, that you read and you think you, you comprehend and, and you enjoy and appreciate a work of literature, but it's always, it's always just revelatory talking to the author because there are so many other dimensions that come to light that you might not have been aware of. So that's been a real treat. Yeah. Writers here, they're, they're pretty fantastic. We like them here. <laughs> All right. So what do we want to talk about today news-wise, Sam? Well, the thing I want to do is to draw everyone's attention, if you haven't seen it already, to an extraordinary newsletter on Substack that the great British author Hanif Qureshi is currently writing. So on Boxing Day, I think it was, in Rome, he had this terrible accident. Um, in fact, let me read a bit from his newsletter because he fills in the background far better than I possibly could. So he says, I had just seen Mo Salah score against Aston Villa, sipped half a beer when I began to feel dizzy. I leant forward and put my head between my legs. I woke up a few minutes later in a pool of blood, my neck in a grotesquely twisted position, my wife on her knees beside me. I then experienced what can only be described as a scooped semicircular object with talons attached, scuttling towards me. Using what was left of my reason, I saw this was my hand, an uncanny object over which I had no agency. So he had this fall and you know, fell in a really bad way and uh, twisted his neck and was unable to move. It's, and he's, he's away in Rome. It's a really bad situation. You know, a, a 
just a nightmare for anyone. But he is dictating to his son, Carlo, this extraordinary newsletter detailing partly his progress in hospital in in Rome, in Italy. But it because he's such a great writer, I mean, he takes us to all kinds of other places as well. And um, it's philosophical, it's moving, it's sad, it's anxious, anxious about his wife and, of course, about himself. And it's also hilariously funny. So just before we started recording, I was laughing about the the latest entry, which he's putting up there on Substack, incidentally. So if you Google Hanif Qureshi Substack, you'll find it. And he's talking about how Italians, his Italian doctor finds the way that Americans drink cappuccinos completely baffling. And he's saying to Hanif Qureshi, you know, they drink them in the evening. I just can't comprehend it. It's like putting jam on pasta. I read that one too. I loved it. Um, yeah. And of course, my thought is mm, jam on pasta might be all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually, I've only been to Italy once and just to Rome, but I didn't know there was this, I don't know, maybe snobbery about like when it's appropriate to drink cappuccino and, and when it's not. But but that was really funny. It's a really scary situation that he's in. I don't know much about his medical condition, but I understand that there was swelling around his spinal cord, and that's pretty much paralyzed him. And that's why he's dictating to his son this Substack newsletter. It's also just really cool, I think, because I get the impression that there's not really a lot of editing going on. He's just talking as though he'd be talking into an old-fashioned dictaphone, you know, and everything that he says is is going going into the Substack letter. It's brave, I think, and also, like you said, a little heartwarming, a little scary. But can you give us a little background for maybe, especially U.S. listeners, Sam, that might not know much about Qureshi and, and what he's written? Yeah, sure. So he's been a big figure on the British literary scene, particularly since the early 1990s, maybe even before, in fact, because he wrote a, a play that became a film with Daniel Day-Lewis, My Beautiful Laundrette. And that was his first big break, really. And soon after that, he wrote a fantastic novel called The Buddha of Suburbia, which was one of the first, in a way, books about second generation immigrants in the UK. Certainly one of the first to, to really break through and become mainstream. And he paved the way. In fact, Zadie Smith has said that she, he paved the way for a whole generation of fantastic writers like Zadie Smith. And The Buddha of Suburbia is this great, hilarious, but also very profound and moving book about a young British Asian man finding his way in South London in the 1970s, really, leading up to the 1980s, the, the novel kind of finishes with the the dawn of Thatcherism. It's <laughs> a quite a depressing note, really. But the great thing about the book is it's really life affirming. You can tell that Qureshi's in love with the characters in that book. It's it's funny and it's completely in love with pop culture as well. So there's all kinds of references to David Bowie. So David Bowie went to Hanif Qureshi's school. He was a few years older ah. than him. So there's that connection. And it's, you know, it's something to think of that, this novel that really was so much a coming-of-age book and a, a novel that was in many ways a, a celebration of youth and this 
foundational book about you know second generation immigrants coming of age in the UK and now here he is in this very different situation writing from his hospital bed a long way away in time and in space and um, it makes it all the more moving to think of the Buddha of suburbia and the great work that he's done over his his life I mean he's been a very productive writer he hasn't written as many novels recently i don't think but for a long time he was he was putting out lots of books and now he's writing about the fact that he can't write to a certain extent well he's dictating but he's talking about you know how he misses writing on paper and it's really it's really something i also read that he gets a daily message, I guess, a text message from Salman Rushdie, who's a very good friend of his. And of course, we know about the tragedy that happened to Rushdie last year. So it's two great authors kind of struggling to to get through a, a pretty tough time. Yeah, really. I mean, it's, I mean, it's very, it's really sad to think of them both suffering like this. But the way Hanif Qureshi writes about it and he writes about Salman Rushdie with such love that it's also quite heartening and you know to think that at least they're still able to communicate with each other and you know support each other I guess anyway I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of fumbling around to explain how how great this newsletter is because I found it such a profound experience reading it so I just want to commend it to our listeners go and go and have a look it's it's fantastic yeah, it seems that he started physical therapy at the hospital in Rome. There are some indications that he's starting to get a little bit of movement back. So we can only hope that he'll be able in fact he says that one of his his therapists has promised him that he's going to be able to hold a pen in his hand again. So let's hope that's the case. And of course, we also hope that for Salman Rushdie who has a book coming out next year, a book that I presume was written almost entirely before his accident. It's called Victory City, and it comes out in February. So looking forward to, to checking that out. And we'll just uh, keep rooting for these, these writers to continue to uh, get healthier and, and provide us with great literature. Yes. Yes, please. <laughs> All right, Sam. Thanks. Thanks, Laurie. Hello Across the Pond listeners. Sam and I are so happy today to have with us the author Maddie Mortimer, who will be talking to us about her debut novel, Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies. Welcome, Maddie. Hi. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. We're very pleased to have you. Would you like to start out reading a short passage from the book? Yes, I will. I'm going to start from the beginning, um, seeing as it's often a good place to start. (laughs) Yeah, there, there are two. There are. This will give you a little kind of insight into the two voices of the book. One is in first, written in first person, and the other is in the third. And we begin inside the body of our protagonist, Leah. I. I itch of ink, think of thing, plucked open at her start. No bigger than a capillary, no wiser than a cantaloupe, and quite optimistic about what my life would come to look like. I have since ached along her edges. Delighting in my bare feet floorboard creeps across from where she once would feed, down to where her body brews, I have sampled, splintered, leaked and chewed through tissue, nook, bone, crease and node. So much, so well, so tough now, 
that the place feels like my own. Today I might trace the rungs of her larynx, or tap at her trachea like the bones of a xylophone, or cook up or undo some great horrors of my own. Because here is the thing about bodies. They are impossibly easy to prowl, without anyone suspecting a thing. Until, of course, they do. And then, of course, they aren't. The beginning of the end. Leah remembered two things about the beginning of the end. The first, the time it took the traffic lights to change. The second, the fact that nobody died. She was one crossing away from the place she needed to be, the surging rhythm of the city in her pulse, the day tripping quick towards rush hour. Her senses felt unusually alert, nicked wide open by nerves, perhaps. It was nice, a nice change, to feel this exposed, this alive, while standing at a red light waiting for the world to resume itself. A man in a suit that was too small for him sighed heavily and hailed a taxi. Two women spoke loudly on their phones, slices of their conversation burying themselves into the back of her neck. I told him, I said, you can't help how you feel. Book the 2.30 slot tomorrow. There's some leftover casserole in the fridge you can microwave. No cash, I'm afraid. Won't be late. God, I always feel so bad. Remember to feed the cat. Leah pinched the velvet of her earlobe and thought about tragedy. Which poet was it that said an abiding sense of tragedy can sustain a man through temporary periods of joy? Which philosopher was it that said all tragedies begin with an admirable quiet? Today had been full of clamour. Everyone seemed seconds away from catastrophe. I think I'll stop there. That was lovely. Thank you. I'm going to say, I'll take a, a reach here. I think that you're in love with words, Maddie. It's so it's so interesting to read how you, you play with words and you play with how they sound and you've got puns in there. And I guess I wanted to ask you how this kind of expansive attitude to language kind of affected how you approached writing this book and also how you wrote about the many voices of Leah's disease. Yes. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think I, I still see the book in many ways as a bit of a love letter to language. And it kind of, it comes from, I mean, my, my background in terms of the literature that was inspired, that has inspired me most throughout my life has been poetry, really. And I often feel like I, I have only come to like writing prose because I'm not a good enough poet. <laughs> and so, um, and so it was, yeah. So, so my kind of, my, my kind of central concerns, I suppose, are around the way that, that language informs character and character, character informs language and, um, and the kind of, yeah, the worlds that we can create within little etymologies and the history of words. And so, yeah, so it's a, it's a primary concern, I guess, and sort of, yeah. And, and the sort of the central love story, I guess, in the book. Let's talk about your protagonist here, Leah. Yeah, because the novel is so is so much sort of about um, language as organism, like this idea of of words metastasizing and and spreading and perspective in books. And there's you know the novel has these, these two threads. Um, which I kind of, which from which I read, and they sort of end up competing to tell the story. And one of them is this, this, this I voice, which I've never explicitly called the voice of Leah's disease. And I kind of, I started off thinking of it primarily, and like it begins, I itch of ink, think of thing. It is sort of for me, 
the worst of her. It is, I, I wanted to begin with this I, like what does, what does the sound, what does the worst of us sound like? What is the sound of shame? What is, you know, what is it to be a person and to live inside a body and feel those two very disconnected things like the body and the mind? And so I began with this I voice but it wasn't there from the beginning at all it was it I kind of wrote a lot of the book set inside Leah's body and had these sort of forms moving around her body that had kind of healing or destructive effects on the landscape so there was almost this kind of eco-critical quality to the whole thing um and like this environment was sort of deteriorating and and these sorts of characters were trying to make it better to soothe to heal or to to you know to make things worse um, but it was all running alongside a sort of family drama. It was all a bit much, and I felt, and we needed a guide, I suppose, to lead you, you know, to lead the reader through, through this woman's body. And that's when this idea of 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 narrating it, or at least kind of suggesting to the reader that it was narrated by her disease, by the very thing that's sort of killing her, kind of learning her life from the inside out. So soon after the bit that you've read for us, we find out that Leah has a recurrence of her cancer, and it's very bad this time, terminal. Leah's supported by a very loving husband, Harry, and she also has a teenage daughter, Iris, and they all play big parts in the book. Yes, exactly. And I wondered, you know, when you're thinking about how to represent this family that's facing this this horrible tragedy. There's a lot of love in this book. You can tell that these people genuinely love each other and love being around each other, but there's a lot of humor as well. And I wondered if you could maybe talk to us about the humor that you found that you could express with these characters, even in the midst of this really horrible prognosis. Yeah. I mean, I think lots of people who have gone through sort of tragedies, I guess, um, know, know or at least recognize that when you're in these very heightened situations, when there's a lot at stake, there's, you know, there's like a kind of hysterical quality to them too. Like things are very funny when, you know, it often when things are, are sliding into kind of a very tragic place. And often the only way to kind of deal with them is by recognizing the humor in, in, the, in the kind of the bleak um, so the book is really, yeah, is is constantly sort of combating, yeah, kind of darkness and bleakness with humour and trying to sort of rewrite the two and and marry them up and try and find some way of redefining what we consider as depressing or funny or 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 dark or light and and I guess the definition the way that we yeah, I, I like to think that the way that we kind of perceive things like change change, you know, changes the very thing itself. And I guess that's an idea that the book is constantly trying to return to. Like, how can, how can, how can these characters sort of live each day and and love each other and make the most of of the their, their time together? And and humor is one of the ways that they do that. Hmm. While there is that light, of course, there is the darkness in the book, and often it feels like reading a kind of horror story in a way, when the the very physical descriptions of the cancer attacking Leah and you know the brutality and viciousness and you know I'm using those emotional words because that that's partly the way it's described very directly uh, in with that voice of the disease maybe and you know with the the way that the Leah feels about it so I wonder how it feels to be in amongst that 
as a writer and how hard it is to get those words on the page I guess yeah yeah it's interesting I think I think it kind of comes down to the sort of like a writer's disposition a little bit in terms of how your brain functions like I think that I've always been quite drawn to to horror I've I've kind of grown up loving horror movies and I love yeah like body horror in in fiction as well and so I think that I it was always going to be this like very kind of visceral thing and so and so it kind of it it's interesting because it comes in some ways the kind of horrific visceral nature of it all comes quite naturally to me because I feel like that's the way that my imagination works like even in the beginning of the book Leah is sort of Leah's sort of walking around just before she finds out she's diagnosed she's walking around London um going on you know on the way to a hospital and this is before anything even gets particularly dark but she's imagining all these people around her sort of dying and all these kinds of brutal deaths that aren't even happening you know and that's before she's even found out so it's this idea that it sort of sets up the world as being sort of this place that's full of of horror um really and then it's kind of around every corner and I think that's sort of teased throughout but you're right it does get to a it is I mean I mean I mean and then I guess it comes down to also that you know I was doing lots of research about cancerous cells and the way that they work and you know it's the the you know her body is is turning on itself and I think that's that's the kind of the central conceit of the novel I guess is the way that a body can turn on itself but also the way that our minds can turn on ourselves. And that's actually where things are most horrific, you know, and because we can't really control, I mean, we can't really control, particularly when it comes to cancer, we know so little about it, the way that our cells, you know, but our cells kind of, you know, attack. But the way, the thing that we sort of, that we all, that we almost can, or at least the great struggle of kind of, I don't know, human existence, I guess, if it's not such a kind of <laughs> grandiose way of putting it. <laughs> is is the you know is the, is the battles that we have with ourselves with our our brains and i guess i wanted to use the cancerous cell as a metaphor for the relentless like dark the, the kind of how relentlessly horrific and torturous we can be to ourselves rather than the other way around i suppose there's a there's an attacking there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of regret in the book when leah kind of looks back at why she thinks i mean she's kind of convinced herself in some ways that she is partly responsible for how sick she is and I think this is quite common within patients of lots of different illnesses that we try and attach some sort of autonomy to to the way that our bodies are functioning or not functioning and so she's sort of looking back on her life and trying to forgive the various failures and secrets and mistakes that she's made you know and 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 I guess in some ways you know is is partly unsuccessful for a lot of it and she's she's also terrified and fear is something you know that kind of that can turn our world into a much darker place and again it's all it's all contained within within us isn't it it's all it's all a matter of perspective mm. leah grows up in a very religious family but she really doesn't carry the religion forward to her personal life as as an adult and i think one of the most complex characters for me in the book is anne leah's mother mm. i love anne and at one point, Anne thinks Leah's life had been her greatest theological problem. And I wondered with respect to kind of Anne and how she relates to her daughter and her daughter's illness, what 
what do you think that what were you trying to say about about faith and religion in the book well i guess it comes down to this idea of you know well the problem of evil i guess it's 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 punishment isn't it it's it's why bad things happen to supposedly good people why why terrible things happen to people with faith and without faith and and how you know god chooses i guess what he does to to various lives and and for anne that's i mean i think i like to think of her as as i think at the beginning of the book she's a bit of like an anti-intellectual really like I, she's she's married to Peter, who's a vicar. He, uh, you know, by, well, by nature and by profession, um, has had to think about his theology. Um, but I think Anne has sort of taken it for granted; has never had to analyze it much, and um, it's just sort of assumed. Which is why I find, but but it's, she she feels it deeply, and I don't think she really knows how to explain it. Which is why I feel she's like sort of the most tragic character because she just has no words for the things that she feels. She has no way of really expressing what it is that's going on. And there's great tragedy and great sadness in that. And part of her journey throughout the novel is kind of finding the words for the things that she thinks and feels. But yeah, Leah, Leah, have it, you know, kind of sliding towards death. I guess is is becomes becomes a great problem for Anne but also she is her great you know her greatest theological problem because Leah from the very beginning of the book just doesn't feel God's presence she doesn't she just doesn't believe it she's sort of waiting around for him and and doesn't kind of understand why why she why she feels his absence and wonders whether there's something that's within her that sort of repels him and i think that kind of partially comes down to also this idea of mischief like she's quite a mischievous child he's kind of drawn to dark things and she, you know the kind of the first the first uh i don't know bit of literature she gets her hands on or whatever is obviously the bible having such religious parents and she's she's kind of drawn really early to like the gory dark bits of the Bible because there are a lot <laughs> and, and and she's excited by that stuff and Anne obviously sees this as a kind of devilish side of her daughter that she cannot understand how this how this how this child has this sort of unexplainable unexplicable you know darkness to her soul and to her interests and her her darkness I guess is creative too like she you know she kind of draws these very disturbing drawings and I, I mean I hope that sort of answers your question a little bit about how Leah is Anne's great theological problem but it's but it's but I think the faith kind of issue in the book or at least its role in the novel is an interesting one and not she doesn't completely kind of denounce it entirely there's definitely this sense that that it's this problem for Leah that that she it's not her faith is something that she's sort of grappling with throughout because she does address God. She does think, she does think of God occasionally. And it's sort of like, she can't, she can't detach herself entirely from those, from those things that have been handed to her. Talking about being drawn to dark things. I wonder if you could tell us about the character of Matthew and whether in fact he, he is a dark thing. Uh, if you could tell us about the, the role he plays in the book and his relationship with Leah. Yeah. Well, interestingly, he, I, I mean, I, I think he's sort of indivisible from Leah's relationship with faith a little. Like I always see Matthew and God sort of almost as the same character in the book and they're sort of interchangeable. I mean, there's a bit at the end where she makes some, Leah makes some comment also has some kind of like revelation about, him sort of 
you know, keeping the Lord's seat warm when the Lord felt absent and them doing kind of the opposite for each other. She, I mean, you know, Matthew, Matthew is this orphan who turns up at the parish, um, the vicarage that Leah grows up in and is sort of taken in by her parents and becomes a kind of brotherly figure to her, I suppose. But she's also sort of captivated by his unknowability and his beauty um, at the age of, I think she's 12 when he turns up and he's like 16 or something. Yeah, that's it. And he sort of beca- ends up becoming the the sort of great love of her life, I suppose, and um, is defined by his absence more than his presence. And he comes and goes. And so she, and in in the way that in the way that you know God is often you know for even believers defined by his absence rather than his presence. And he becomes this symbol to her of everything. Of 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 a, of a life outside of the parish, one day that she might be able to kind of achieve, but also of this life of sort of passion and 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 romance. And he's sort of the classic romantic hero throughout the novel. But but I wanted to to kind of find some way of interrogating those those romantic heroes that we're sort of given in the great kind of gothic classics like the Brontes, Wuthering Heights, and all of that. There's constant references to Heathcliff and stuff. Um, and that's just, I mean, I love, I, I grew up sort of loving the Brontes. And so they were always going to find their way in there. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, he's a, he is, he is an, I, he's a really, it's a really interesting one. He, I, I actually enjoyed spending time with them and him the most. And I was talking about this recently at an event or something about the way that he sort of ran away from me in the end as a, as a writer. Like I loved spending time with them so much. I actually didn't know where it was going. And I sort of found myself falling in love with Matthew through the writing process and ended. And, and it was actually the American editors of the book that after kind of the, a few drafts in someone turned around and was like, Leah never gets her. Leah never really gets her revelation that you know he was a bit of a dick or whatever they're like (laughs) (laughs) this is very romanticized and I was very like no it's not no it's not no it's not romanticized at all and then kind of read it and was like no god it is and I had to do a kind of falling out of love with Matthew draft of going back and having Leah much more kind of consciously aware of of how fraught and tricky that relationship was um as an older woman you know in her early 40s looking back on um, you know, on her teenage years and her early 20s or whatever. So thank God for the American editors. <laughs> I want to ask about this editorial process now. So you had UK editors and American editors at the same time. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't, my UK editors were my main editors, but the mm. book, um, but Scribner and my publishers in the US and often, you know, when you, you when they've got, when, you know, they've got your they bought your book too or whatever and they're publishing it they'll have their you know their role or their say and it kind of depends some books some some I know I've you know friends who have been edited kind of heavily by their US editors as well as their you know and they kind of work together but it was mostly my they did they mostly my UK editors at Picador that did the kind of the bulk of the editing but they the Americans did a very good sort of sweep at the end and covered lots of sort of more legal things like for example Leah and <laughs> Leah and Leah was younger Leah, or, or at least Leah when she started ha- having kind of romantic feelings for Matthew was quite young in a very kind of like British way <laughs> it was all like way and the and the American editors were like we're going to run into problems here you need to up her age like can 12 year olds feel desire 
and I would be there on Zooms being like, yeah, I felt desire when I was 12 and had to, and had, but then had to kind of, you know, just rethink the language of it all. But it's interesting, the different markets and the certain things that are, that are acceptable. And I think in, in certain, I don't know, I don't know. It was, there's definitely, there's definitely a kind of editorial difference and also just, yeah, just what, what's kind of more commonplace, I guess. I think I got the sense that British people were a bit, well, at least my British editors were a bit like, well, that's fine. And, <laughs> we're so uptight in the States. So uptight. So uptight. <laughs> so I, I'm an editor myself, I should, I should explain. So I'm really curious about a lot of things that must have happened in this book. And one to get right into the nitty gritty, I have to apologize slightly to our listeners because it's a very visual thing, is the way the words uh, are set on the page. Mm. Um, and, you know, lots of them, they wobble around and they're in different sizes. There are lots of different fonts. It's not just the fonts that are different. It's the, the way they're positioned on the page. And a lot of complicated stuff is happening. And I'm wondering, was it difficult, first of all, to get that past the editors? And then how you explained all these things? Did you kind of have to draw it in yourself and get a typesetter to, to put it in the right place? Or what happened? Yeah. So interestingly, I did most of them myself in the manuscript from the very beginning. So they weren't, so they were pretty much as you were, as you see, as you, you know, in the first kind of a hundred pages was, you know, is that exactly how it was placed on the page when my agent and then next my editor received the manuscript. So they were sort of there, they were part of the, they kind of grew organically from Leah herself and was kind of part of the structure and the bones of the book from the beginning. And I always knew, and I hadn't, I didn't really think much about, about it. It felt very natural, I think in part because Leah is an illustrator um, and is a very visual thinker and has this kind of vast wild imagination. So I just, she sort of arrived on the page as someone where like, if she was thinking something, the words just would turn into a bit of a circle occasionally. And I had to rein it in (laughs) because, you know, but she does, you know, she illustrates children's books too. So that allowed me a sort of playfulness and a freedom that perhaps I wouldn't have had were she like a lawyer. But, (laughs) but so there was always that. And then there was the kind of the element of, this being in part a journey through a woman's body and making me want, and I, and I wanted to make it feel like a visual journey, like something we were, you know, where words are swelling and leaking. And again, like we were talking about language as organism, how can I test what a book can be, what a text can feel like, you know, what are the little motifs and the kind of little codes and languages that I can build up through the book so that when a line breaks or something starts to spin or, or, engorge or whatever we we know what that means in the context of the story itself and so that was something that was always kind of I wanted to play with um but I was so surprised that I didn't get much pushback from the publishers I expected them to be like this is all fine but we need to get rid of it on the actual you know when when this is actually published, your little squiggles will 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 no longer be there, and there'll be a little secret that we all knew, you know, once existed, but slowly got kind of, you know, chipped away at and eventually erased. So I fully expected that, but they kind of welcomed it with open arms. There was no, I think they didn't, and then when I realised how welcome, how welcoming they were, I then kind of later on realized that I wanted to like do a bit more of it I'd be like oh so my skills because I sort of taught myself how to do a lot of it on InDesign just draw you draw a little type path and you just type along the path and then there were certain things that I couldn't do like there's a 
there's a firework halfway through which that which like bursts which is and says the words like who the fuck are you or something in the air and I didn't know how to do that and, and kind of late on maybe even like three four months before the book was supposed to be published I was like can we turn this into a firework and they were like yeah fine <laughs> <laughs> and sent and and a brilliant typesetter came back and um and and set and set and showed me you know what what she'd done and was like is this okay and that was so exciting to to be able to collaborate visually with something in like a graphic sense as well as you know having obviously an editor to bounce off so that was that was amazing I think there was literally one one thing and I can't I wish I remembered what it was now but there was one thing that they said no to because in part in part I want I think I wanted at one point I mean it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked but still to this day I think about like I could have it could have there could have been more, even more, I guess, more graphic stuff. Like, I, because the book is so much sort of about what a book can be and the way that we receive different kinds of texts and and what literature is and you know even like what what is a word on a page and 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 thinking about ink and paper as as kind of you know light and darkness, I guess, and and just you know the page as a kind of yeah as a, as a sort of a bit of philosophy kind of handed up, you know, to us in, in, in its kind of physical form. So I kind of wanted, I think I would have loved a version of the book where like the whole thing sort of deteriorated and all of the words sort of tumbled into the spine and the whole thing sort of ate itself, you know, cause that's <laughs> kind of, kind of what it's, what it's nearly doing. But I think for the sake of it can, you know, remit, you know, keeping or being, you know, a, a, a story, I guess that doesn't, entirely self-destruct I think it's suggested already in the way that the, the the story evolves and the events that happen near the end of the book I think I do that with language rather than visually where things just get completely bonkers which is yeah I guess the the, in the story in story terms the same as everything eating itself and the, the words tumbling into the center of the spine of the book and everything. <laughs> well, I thought that the visualization that you do with the words was very much just in keeping with Leah and Iris's kind of approach to language. And they have this ritual between the two of them mm-hmm. of having word talks where Iris might not know what a word means, but Leah will ask her, well, what does it sound like it means? And so, I don't know, for me, some of those visual representations were kind of exploring, you know, just kind of all the possibilities of, of words, which mm. was, I think, really nice in keeping with that theme of, of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I love those. Those were really uh, lovely to write, actually, the word talks and this idea of us, of, of Leah trying to pass on to her daughter to really kind of to never be certain about what things mean and and, and to kind of keep keep as open as possible to to how fluid and and unstable words can be. And I think there is this sense throughout that that in part Leah is sort of preparing her daughter for her for her death in some ways, this idea that they might be able to sort of beat death by redefining it or at least prove to to Iris that there are many ways that a person can continue to be so I think it's it's sort of part of her preparation for her death because because you know that it's it's if we if we remain yeah if we remain kind of open and playful with the way that we perceive the world 
then things don't really have to end. And I think that's sort of what the book is an exercise in, is is what it means for a person to live and to be and to exist and then to vanish and and how we deal with that. Yeah, I, I thought very much that the the book doesn't have a happy ending, but I feel like it does have a hopeful ending. Mm. I wanted to ask you, I really didn't realize how personal this narrative was for you until I read the acknowledgments at the end of the book. And do you want to talk about, and maybe it's too personal, but how difficult was this book for you to write? I don't know. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough one because I don't, I don't, I didn't set out to write about anything I had experienced. And it's a tricky one because people are, people like to kind of, yeah, to talk about the personal element, I guess. My, yeah, my mum died of cancer when I was 14. It, in, but in some ways it wasn't hard at all because I had the fact that it was fiction. Kind of, I think I, it would have been much harder if I'd sat down and tried to write about my mum and my experiences with her. And there is a lot of that. There's a lot of that's that's kind of crossed over from us into Leah and Iris. And but that was something I didn't feel particularly in control of. And so Leah and Iris sort of protected me from the difficulty of it all because they were just so themselves. And the book had so much to teach me about my mum's death rather than the other way around. Um, I didn't feel like, and I certainly didn't set out to write about her. But yeah, I think I think that's what's been so magical about it is looking back and seeing how much as, you know, as a kind of, you know, writer of fiction, how much the work has to be its own thing and how you have to sort of relinquish control a little and 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 let it lead you. And so I think I think throughout most of it, it was actually more a delight than it was difficult and loved spending time in that in that relationship and with them, because I felt I was sort of, yeah, in communication with something that I had once experienced and finding some ways sort of preserving it. And, and it felt really magic because it did feel in, in moments like, yeah, being able to lay down something that I felt my mum had given to me. But by the end, I think going back over that, those kind of last few days and kind of us experiencing her die, those those last few pages were certainly the most sort of, I guess, um, yeah, close to the bone, semi-autobiographical, I, I suppose. And, and, you know, much more so than the rest of the book. A lot of it is completely made up. And that's frustrating too, to have people be like, I didn't know your mum grew up in, a, you know, a parish or whatever. And it's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> It's all completely made up. And, you know, if anything, they're all more me than they are her anyway, you know. But but no, that by that end, there was a lot of kind of, yeah, pay, you know, the, the, the final 30 pages were pretty much what our family sort of went through with her dying. And, and, that, was, and that was just a very surreal um, kind of offloading of, 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 of things that I never thought I'd be able to put into words and and incredibly emotional and very and yeah I just I did write it sort of feeling like it wasn't me doing it feeling like I was some sort of conduit for something bigger better greater than myself I guess and that was very humbling and something that I'm not sure I'll ever have again 
and I'm sure that I'll probably spend the rest of my writing life sort of looking for that feeling again when it's just not you and you're just and it's just it's the most precise writing I think I've ever done as well in that we didn't like not a comma like barely a comma has changed since the very very first draft you know, and I think that's quite rare. I mean, after all, the Americans got their hands on it. <laughs> um, Those Americans. Those Americans. No, I'm joking. But, the, you know, I think that's quite rare to have, to you know, kind of word for word, the first, the very first time those, you know, words hit the page, I guess, to have remained and formatted and everything, you know, completely untouched is quite a thing. And and so, yeah, that was, the, I guess, I guess that was what you could say is hard but I also you know I love a good cry and I think that writing is a sort of form of self-flagellation and you know if you if you if you're not up for a bit of you know torturing of yourself then you're probably not you know gonna end up doing the most truthful writing that you possibly can. So if you can answer this I'm curious to know now about the writing you want to go on to do and if this felt like the book as well that you had to write before you could do that writing. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. It's interesting because I had, so I'm working, I've been working on a second book and I've actually jumped between an idea. I was working on something and I jumped ship because I thought it was a bit too experimental, a little bit too kind of formally playful. And I just felt, no, I think where, what I want to do next is apply those kind of, formally experimental sense you know kind of elements I guess to a really a cracking good story and I think that's what I liked about writing maps is that it does have plot it's not completely you know aimless I guess as as some slightly more experimental fiction is is a little bit I, I, I guess some experimental fiction you can call like particularly plotty but this is kind of plotty like there's, there's little puzzles in there and and I love that kind of structural planning I guess and so I've jumped ship and I'm doing this other book at the moment and feel very free to just kind of yeah jump into all sorts of scenarios and broaden the world it's a little bit less local a little bit less domestic I mean it's just as bonkers (laughs) But, (laughs) but yeah I think you're I think you'd probably be right to say that that this is definitely but I guess all debut authors would say that maybe that that's their first book is the thing that they needed to that they needed to you know get out of the way so that they could get onto the proper stuff not that this isn't proper stuff in (laughs) some way but (laughs) you know well Maddie keep it bonkers don't let the Americans get a hold of it first (laughs) terrible the Americans are never going to publish me again I love the Americans. They've been very supportive. No, I am sure the Americans will publish you again because this book has really, I think, made a really big impact here. And I know that it's it's been a very important book for a lot of people that come into my bookstore. So really, that's yes. lovely to hear. So thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for sharing with us your debut novel, Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies. We look forward to talking to you with your next book. Thank you so much, guys. This has been really lovely. And I will. You'll have to have me on for the next one. For sure. (laughs) Deal. Deal. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 